Thank you very much. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It is uh, very close to Easter time, as mentioned earlier, in light of our announcement about Easter lilies. Not the com- this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday will be Easter. And so we want to take the next three Sundays, including today, to focus on what Easter is all about and to think about that. And at the heart of, at the, heart of the gospel is what Easter is all about. It's about the fact that God has provided his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die, and then rise from the dead, and to give us life. And so today we want to talk about the fact that Jesus lived the life we could never live. And we're called to trust in Jesus. We're called to rest completely in what he's done for us, to put our full weight on him. But We'll never do that until we see our need for that. Um, When our kids were younger, um, someone, a friend of ours in Texas, sent us some baked goods. And in order to say thank you to this uh, lady, we decided to do a little commercial with our kids. And so we did this commercial. Her name was Beth. And so we made this commercial about Aunt Beth's better than you baked goods or baked goodies. And so we made this little commercial with our kids and things. And at the tagline that went through this little commercial that we made was, why make it for yourself when Aunt Beth can make it better than you do? Aunt Beth's better than you baked goodies. Well, there are two um, suppositions or assumptions in that commercial. One is you can't make it like Aunt Beth can make it, but Aunt Beth is willing to help you and to make it for you. And that's really what a huge part of Easter is. It's about the story that we can't be all that we're supposed to be. We can't make happen what needs to happen, but Jesus can and Jesus has and Jesus is willing to give us what we need. And so uh, as we look at Matthew 5, Matthew 5 helps us see our need, that we really need Jesus. And that's really what I want to start with and I want to end with is basically the question, do you need Jesus? Because that's what Easter uh, does. It raises the question of, do I need Jesus? A lot of people in our world that aren't even Christians celebrate Christmas. There are things about Christmas that people embrace. There's not too many people in the world that celebrate Easter, at least not in terms of involving the death of Christ and those kinds of things. Maybe the Easter bunny, those kinds of things. But uh, at least at Christmas time, even unbelievers will recognize the birth of Jesus in various ways. But Jesus on the cross isn't something that is typically celebrated by the world because The cross of Christ is meant to expose some things that maybe isn't as easily seen in the Christmas story. Um, We're going through a book in our small group called Good and and Angry by David Pallison. And he's talking about the fact that all of us are wired to evaluate things. And we do it automatically. We don't even have to think, okay, I'm going to evaluate now. It just happens. We evaluate people We evaluate ourselves, we evaluate our dinner, we evaluate our government, we evaluate all kinds of things. And we give uh, those things either the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And throughout our day, we're going like this, to various ideas, various people, various things, even our own actions, up or down, up or down. We're just constantly doing that. And why do we do that? Because we're made in the image of God. God is constantly evaluating everything because he's a holy God and therefore he evaluates everything in light of his own holiness. Well, one of the things that this chapter does for us is raise the question of who do we think are the best people on the planet? If you were to answer the question, uh, 
who do, who do you think is the best person you've ever known? You might say, well, I think my mom or my dad or my grandmother or my grandfather or, or the my friend that I had when I was growing up or who knows who you might say. Um, but the question is, would they be able to do anything for you when you stand before God? And this chapter raises the question whether or not even that person that you think is the best person you've ever known or maybe even the best person on the planet in your opinion, could they ever stand before God and be accepted based on their own goodness, their own performance, their own righteousness? And so that just raises the question, do they need Jesus? Do the best people on the planet need Jesus? Do the, does the best person you believe uh, you've ever known need Jesus? And do you need Jesus? And, and how does that affect your relationship to, with God, whether or not you believe you need Jesus or not? And how does that affect how you relate to other people, whether or not you believe you need Jesus or not? Well, what I'm hoping we'll see through Matthew chapter 5 is that when we talk about uh, better than the best, um, that is really what is required of all of us, is that whoever the best person on the planet might be, is that is not good enough to be accepted by a holy God. And yet that's what's required of all of us, is to be better than the best person we can imagine or the best person we can uh, know or, or point to. But the good news is, Jesus is better. And he's an able and willing savior for you and me. And that's the good news of Easter. And so let me read for us Matthew chapter 5. Uh, try to hang in there. Obviously, it's a long chapter. We're not going to be able to talk about everything in this chapter. But what we find in Matthew 5 is one of the longest teachings uh, that we find recorded in scripture that Jesus uh, did. And it's his most famous sermon. It's the most famous sermon. Even a lot of people who aren't even Christians have heard about the Sermon on the Mount. It was a sermon that his disciples heard, but the crowds heard this sermon as well. And it's one of the ways in which the Lord Jesus challenged people's thinking, challenged their thinking about God, challenged their thinking about the Bible and how they understood the Bible and challenged their thinking about themselves and whether or not they were going to be a part of the kingdom of God that is to come. And so let me just begin in verse 1. We'll read through this chapter and just make some comments on it that I hope will be encouraging and helpful for us. In verse 1 it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for grace to receive your word. We thank you for it. Help us to receive it for what it is, the word of God and not the word of men for our good in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we want to take just a little time to uh, highlight some things in this chapter. Obviously, there's a lot here. The the sermon actually goes on for a couple more chapters. 
Um, And so it's a very rich, rich sermon that the Lord Jesus gives to us, telling us the truth about God, about ourselves, about life. And we have to remember he's doing this as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He's speaking as a Savior for sinners. So he's saying what he's saying that we might be saved, not simply saying what he's saying that we might feel bad or that we might be condemned. He's speaking as a Savior, but also as Lord, who will one day judge every single one of us. And he knows that. And so in his grace and his mercy, he's telling us the truth that we might be prepared for that very day. Well, the first thing that I think is interesting to me is that he starts off this very famous sermon with what they call the Beatitudes, And the Beatitudes comes from the Latin reference to blessed. So he gives us eight statements of blessed are those who are like this and those who are like this. And the idea of blessedness is the idea of truly happy. It is very much, it could be translated happy, but not happy in the sense that, oh, I I like how my life is going. But happy in the sense that I have found the answer to the source of real joy, full joy, lasting joy. And in this life, we're not going to be happy in the sense that we're happy about everything that's going on. The Bible says rejoice always. And how do you do that? If you found the source of true joy, if you found the source of full joy, you found the source of lasting joy, and you know that one day you will experience that to the full then you can rejoice even in this fallen world for this temporary time when life isn't everything that God intended for it to be. And so the Lord Jesus is describing those who can rejoice now because of a ultimate happiness that they will experience in the future. And so just like Calvin said, uh, Jesus speaks here to his disciples about true happiness, which means that God is just as concerned about your happiness as you are. Which is very, very important because the reason why Adam and Eve sinned was because they doubted God's love for them. They doubted that he really had their good in mind, that he really wanted them to be truly, fully, forever happy. And that's why they disobeyed. It's the same way for us. We disobey because... We doubt the goodness of God, the love of God. We doubt his heart to really make us truly, fully, forever happy. And so in Jesus' most famous sermon, he argues that God is very concerned about that. But he's also linking it to God, that it's happiness in God, that we will not find that happiness apart from God. And so as... uh, Blaise Pascal said, all men seek their happiness, no matter what they do. Why? Because we're wired that way. We're wired to seek our happiness. But like C.S. Lewis said, we're offered in the gospel infinite joy, like a day at the sea, like a little child being offered a day at the sea. But we decide, I'll just continue playing in the mud puddle in these slums instead, because we have no vision for what it means to go to the beach have no vision for something better and the lord jesus is saying that there's something better that's offered us in god through jesus it's better than the best this world has to offer and yet in order to enjoy the better that god offers we have to recognize that we are in great great need and it's reflected in a couple ways In this first section, I won't go over all the Beatitudes, but if you look at verse 3, it says, Blessed or truly happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the word for poor there is the idea of poor like a beggar. And what does a beggar do? He begs. Why? Because he lacks what he needs. And he lacks the resources to get what he needs. He's like in the New Testament, the blind person who can't see to work or the lame person who can't get up and walk. And so they beg 
for what they need. They don't have what they need and they don't have the resources to get what they need. And so it's an awareness. It's a, it's a self-awareness that causes me to be humble. It says, I don't have what I need. And in fact, I don't have what I should have. And so the idea is reflected in stories like the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, where you've got uh, these two men who are praying in the temple. The Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people and that I do things that other people don't do. And I thank you that I'm essentially good enough for you to love and bless. Paraphrasing what he says there. And he says, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector. And the tax collector is over there praying, but he can't even lift his eyes up to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't say, God, you ought to bless me because I'm so wonderful. You ought to accept me. You ought to believe that my life is good enough for what you offer. Instead, he says, I don't deserve anything. I lack everything I need. I'm a beggar, like Martin Luther said. We are all beggars. Have mercy on me. Um, Be merciful to me. Give me what I need, not because I deserve it, but because of your mercy and your goodness. And so the first thing the Lord Jesus says is that truly happy people are not people that can look at their portfolio and see what they have. Those aren't the truly happy people. The truly happy people are those who look at their life and see what they don't have. They don't have the righteousness that God requires. They don't have the love for God and the love for others that God requires. They are beggars. They don't have it and they can't produce it on their own. They can't live up to what God calls us to do. And then he also highlights... um, this whole idea of a a need for what we lack uh, with another uh, beatitude in verse 6 when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean when you're hungry and thirsty? Uh, You don't have the food and drink that you need. You lack food and drink. And he says, but he's not talking about food and drink. He's talking about righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness means I do what's right. Do what's right in whose opinion? God's opinion, from God's perspective. I do what's right in terms of loving God. I do what's right in terms of loving other people around me. And so to, to be hungry for something, you have to recognize that you don't have, have it. And so the truly happy person isn't the person who thinks, you know, I think I'm doing a pretty good job in my relationship with God. I think I'm doing a pretty good job in my relationship with other people. I'm better than that guy over there, right? So relatively speaking, I think I'm doing pretty good. At least I go to church or I do this or I do that. A lot of people don't. Um, So I think I'm doing pretty good. God says that's not a position from which you can experience true happiness. True happiness comes from recognizing that I, I need a love for God that I don't have. I need a love for others that I don't have. And actually desiring to be and to have what you don't have. That's why the Lord Jesus could uh, interact with people in Luke 13 who told him about how Pilate put to death some people who were worshiping in a certain way. And they were wondering what Jesus thought about that. And he said... Um, you may think that those Galileans were, were worse men than the rest of you guys, but that's not true. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so he makes the point that we tend to look at other people, we look at their circumstances, and we say, well, that person is poor. I'm not, so I must be better than they are. Well, that person died a certain way and in a very horrible way, and I haven't. And so I must be, must have been because of what they did or what they were, and I must be different. I must be better. Again, this is that valuation thing that we are wired to do. And the Lord Jesus says, um, 
Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We tend to put ourselves in different categories from other people. You know, if we look at people like Hitler and we say, uh, I'm not even close to what Hitler was. Um, We have to think about that. Are Are you really certain you're not anything like Hitler? Well, that's why Matthew 5 is so important because it helps us think through really where we stand before God and how God looks at these things. Because when Jesus says repent, he means recognize your need, your lack, and go to God for what you need. And if you think you're better than others, or if I think I'm better than others, and I have what I need, I will never go to God for what I need. And I will never receive what he offers. So anyway, the Beatitudes begin uh, the discussion of the issue of lack and righteousness. And then the next section, verses 13 and following, help us think about on what basis do we evaluate whether or not we really lack anything. Um, In our day and time, um, people... A lot of people operate on three assumptions, especially in our culture now because we've moved so far away from our Judeo-Christian heritage. A lot of people operate on the assumption that there is no God, there is no afterlife, and there is no standard for right and wrong. Those three things. Many people live their lives either consciously or or, or unconsciously, so to speak, with those three assumptions. There is no God, there is no afterlife, there is no standard of right and wrong. And the question we have to ask is, what if they're wrong? What if there is a God? What if there is an afterlife? What if there is a standard of right and wrong? And Matthew 5 says there definitely is a God, there is an afterlife. Jesus talks about both heaven and hell in Matthew 5. And here in these verses in 13 uh, through 19, he talks about the standard, a standard of right and wrong. He talks about the fact that his believers, those who follow him, are to be salt and light. But what does that mean? In the context, it means we are to preserve society in a sense and we're to shed light upon society in a sense. But how are we to do that? We're to do that based on a standard. And that standard, the Lord Jesus says, is the law of God. So if you read 13 through 19 in its context, you see the Lord Jesus saying in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, which means the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that um, if we teach others to ignore Uh, the commandments of God, then we will be least in the kingdom. If we obey them, we'll be great in the kingdom. So that the whole issue of um, pleasing God and honoring God and being salt and light is very much tied to whether or not I am concerned about whether or not my life conforms to the commandments of God. That there is a standard that I am called to respond to God in light of, and I am to be concerned about living in light of as well. The reality is, to some degree, we all embrace the fact that there is a standard, right? Um, Even though people will say, you know, I have my truth and I have my standards and you have your standards. Uh, If I steal something from you, we immediately uh, begin to acknowledge a standard outside either one of us. Because we'll both say, wait a minute, that's wrong. Well, the one stealing the, the bike or whatever it is could say, it's not wrong for me. And so it's okay, right? So once we begin to have to actually apply the idea that all of us uh, can make up our own standard, we immediately begin to have a clash of standards and we begin to appeal to something that is higher than either one of us. Uh, you know that you're not supposed to steal especially my stuff. And so there's so much um, that uh, is 
affirms what the Lord Jesus is saying here, and yet um, we tend to be very selective in our application of the standard, right? Um, It's like what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. He said, um, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now that in Romans 2, he's talking about the Jewish people judging the Gentiles. And what's going on there? The Jewish people look at the Gentiles and say, they're obviously worthy to be uh, cast into hell. They're obviously worthy to be destroyed by God. And God, through Paul, says, don't you realize that the very things you're pointing to as worthy of death and destruction are the things that you do. The Jewish people would probably say, especially the religious leaders like the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes that Jesus references would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean? We don't do the very things they do. They, they fall down before um, idols, stone and wood and that sort of thing. Well, God would say, you can worship things as idols without falling down in front of a block of wood. You can worship something that's not God without falling down in front of a physical object so that you're really no different than the person who falls down in front of a block of wood if you worship money. The Pharisees, the Bible says, worshiped, loved money. And so um, the reality is, is that in various situations, whether it's in terms of someone violating us, we, we acknowledge a standard outside of us, or if we're looking at other people and, and condemning them, we're applying a standard that's oftentimes outside of us, and yet what we need to see is that we're more like the people we condemn than less like them. And until we see that, we won't come to God for the help we need, for the forgiveness that we need. Lord Jesus highlights this in, in um, verse 20 when he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the question I asked earlier about who do you think is the best person you've ever known or the best person on the planet? Some people years ago would have said, if you asked them that kind of question, Mother Teresa. Or they would have said, Mr. Rogers. Because you look at people like that, and and many people look at people like that and say, if anyone ought to go to heaven, it ought to be Mother Teresa. If anyone goes to heaven, it ought to be Mr. Rogers. That's the way people look to the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to understand that. That's exactly how people, the common people, looked at the scribes and Pharisees. They looked at them as... If anybody goes to heaven, it'll be the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes are the ones who always study the Bible all day long. That's their, their job is to study the Bible, and so they're devoted to the Bible. And the Pharisees, they're always trying to avoid things that might contaminate them. So they're very meticulous. Uh, they're like the fundamentalists. And they're, in a sense, the negative sense of that term, as many people use it today, very concerned about separatism, being separate. That's what Pharisee means, the separate ones. And so they're very concerned about being, quote, holy. And yet the Lord Jesus says, um, Mother Teresa won't get to heaven on her own. Uh, Mr. Rogers doesn't go to heaven on his own. The scribes and the Pharisees don't go to heaven on their own. If your righteousness doesn't surpass Mother Teresa and Mr. Rogers and the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not go to heaven. That would have shocked the people of that day and time. Just like if you were to go out on the corner and tell somebody, you know what, Um, if Mr. Rogers wasn't trusting Jesus, he didn't go to heaven. Or if Mother Teresa wasn't trusting Jesus, she didn't go to heaven. A lot of people say, you've got to be kidding me. There's nobody better than them. But that's the point that Jesus is making here. He wants to shock us into reality. He wants us to move toward God in light of our need. And so he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the best people on the planet that you know, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the Pharisees would look at what Jesus was doing and he would eat with tax collectors and sinners, quote. Sinners would be like prostitutes and other people in the fringe of society that everybody said, oh, those guys are obviously sinners. The word sinner means obviously a sinner. The tax collectors who are, be- are betraying us to the Romans and the, quote, obvious sinners, you know, why does Jesus eat with them? And Jesus' response was, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Which means Jesus is an able and willing Savior for those who recognize that they need one. If you're righteous or you think you're healthy, you don't think you need a Savior, then Jesus can offer you nothing. Jesus can't do anything for you and won't do anything for you. If you don't need him, uh, he's not, he didn't come just to set a good example for you so that you can follow his lead and earn your way to heaven. He came so that we could be forgiven and given a righteousness that we don't have. You know, a lot of people in our country have refused to take the vaccines, refused to be vaccinated. And why would someone do that? Because they don't see a need for it. And it may also be because they believe it would actually be harmful to do so. Those two reasons. Why do people not receive Jesus and embrace him as the Lord and Savior? They don't see a need for it. And they might think it might even be harmful. Might really mess up their life if they did. And so the Lord Jesus says, I'm the great physician and I have exactly what you need and I'm an able and willing savior for sinners and I want to heal you. But seeing our need is crucial for that and that's why I think the Lord Jesus does what he does in the remaining part of the chapter. What he does is he brings uh, commandments from the Old Testament and he highlights how those have been misunderstood and have been twisted and have been wrongly applied or even added to in a way that was not biblical. In our day and time, a lot of people are getting woke, so to speak. We talked we talk that, that way about the idea of awakening to the social ills in our country. That's the idea is that people are waking up to racism, waking up to police brutality, waking up to the evils of, of capitalism and all kinds of things. That's what a lot of people mean when they talk about being woke. Well, the Lord Jesus was about wokeness, but in a much different sense, in the sense that we need to awaken, be awakened to the truth about God, about ourselves, about what God requires of us, that we might benefit from what Jesus came to do which is to live the life we could never live, die the death we deserve to die, and then rise from the dead as our Lord and Savior. And so let me just briefly touch on this. Obviously, um, I can't spend a lot of time on each of these, but we can apply a lot of what Jesus says here, even to things like uh, what happened this week, which is the talk of the town in terms of our society, which is uh, Will Smith and Chris Rock. Uh, the whole issue uh, that happened at the Oscars or the Academy Awards where Will Smith slapped Chris Rock for making a joke about his wife. And the interesting thing is, if you heard or you read what Will Smith said when he accepted his award, uh, he made comments like, love will make you do crazy things. He made reference to God. He apologized uh, to the Academy in one sense, but didn't apologize to Chris Rock at that point. There's been a lot that's happened since then. But the question is, or excuse me, the the point is, people were all over the map in terms of what they thought about what uh, Will Smith did in that instance. Some people defended him. Some people thought it was horrible. Uh, Some people uh, had good reasons uh, for thinking it was wrong, and others had weird reasons about thinking it was wrong. And the question is, what did God think about that? What does God think about what Will Smith did? What does God think about the joke that Chris Rock made? What did God think about both 
players in this scenario. And the reality is that's the only thing ultimately that will matter is what God thinks about Chris Rock and what he did or said and what Will Smith did and what you say and do and what I say and do. The bottom line is only what God says is right or wrong that makes a difference. And that's why his word is so important because it helps us understand what that is. Well, in verses 21 through 26, we have Jesus talking about the command, you shall not commit murder, which is obviously the uh, sixth of the Ten Commandments. And obviously, Lord Jesus isn't saying that's a bad thing or that's that's wrong, you shouldn't be following the, the Ten Commandments. What he's saying is that you've misunderstood uh, the true implications of what it means to say you shall not commit murder. Because he goes on to say, everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who says to his brother, either Raka, you empty head, or you good for nothing fellow, uh, or you fool, uh, those aren't people just joking with each other. Uh, those are words of condemnation. Those are words that are intend to harm and are wishing harm upon someone. And the Lord Jesus is basically saying that the only thing you need to do to break the Ten Commandments is to have a heart response to someone that, in a sense, violates that command. The reason why people actually end up murdering people is because of what comes out of their heart. It starts in the heart. It doesn't just happen. It starts in the heart. The Lord Jesus says the root of actual murder is anger. It's road rage. Have you ever had road rage? Have you ever been angry enough with someone that you have felt like, I could just choke that person. I could just smack them right in the nose. I could, I, I wish this would happen to them. Might never say it. Might never act on it. But if we're even a little bit self-aware of what's going on in our hearts, Lord Jesus says all of us have committed murder in our hearts. In verses 27 through 30, he talks about the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And he says, uh, I'm not just talking about the physical act. I'm talking about what goes on in your heart. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her and men too, I mean, excuse me, uh, women toward men too, uh, not just men. It involves everyone in one way or another, whether it's a desire for uh, physical intimacy with someone who's not your spouse or just a relationship with someone who's not your spouse in an appropriate uh, way and in an inappropriate desire in our hearts. It's, it's uh, the seventh commandment, and it's the basis for what's going on in porn. Pornography is just inviting you to break the seventh commandment. It's exactly what pornography is. And so for those of us who've done that, we've broken that commandment. Um, So the Lord Jesus is saying, all of us who have had inappropriate desires toward people who are not our spouse uh, have broken that commandment. And you notice... um, The Lord Jesus in both of these first two references uh, brings up the issue of hell. He says, and the fact that we've broken these commandments in our hearts is no small matter. It's worthy of a just punishment in hell. That's a hard truth, but it's meant to be a warning to lead us to the Savior that we need. It's actually a compassionate thing to say to someone These are the true consequences of this sin, even in our hearts. If we don't believe that, then we can think, well, I've never actually committed someone, I've never actually committed adultery, so I must be okay with God. And Jesus is saying, no, we're not. And it's meant to lead us to him. He goes on, he does bring in the issue of divorce in verses 31 and 32. And basically, he's highlighting the fact that no-fault divorce, I'm just going to divorce my wife because California says I can, um, but for no good reason. Uh, He says that's just practical adultery when we do that. He goes on in verses 33 through 37, and he talks about what you might call 
a solemn lying. He says, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord, which is true. But what people were doing in that day and time was they were focusing on vows to the Lord. And so they would make vows, but they would do it in such a way that might give people the impression they were vowing to the Lord, but they really weren't so that they could not keep their vows and be okay. So that's why Jesus says, uh, don't make a vow by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. People wouldn't say, I vow in the name of God, or I vow in the name of the throne of God, or anything like that, but I vow by heaven or by earth. And it's either a way of trying to impress people with your commitment when it really wasn't there, or a way of deceiving people and giving them the impression that you were committed to do something when you really weren't. And it really was just a solemn way of lying. And the reality is a lot of people will go into marriage and they'll take a vow before God and man and really not be serious about keeping that vow. Or they'll sign a contract with someone and not be serious about keeping that contract. And God says that kind of solemn lying is breaking his law. Then he goes on to talk about an eye for an eye in verses 38 through 42. And he references a very well-known command in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which a lot of people think that that's talking about um, personal uh, response to people who hurt me. But it's really meant to guide the uh, judges in the judicial system in the Old Testament. It's the basis for saying you are not to punish someone in a way that does not fit the crime. That's really what it's talking about. Because when the Lord Jesus, um, God gave this uh, commandment in the Old Testament, it was very um, common for pagan nations to say, well, okay, you ran a traffic light, so you die so to speak, that kind of thing, where you had this offense and we're going to give you a much harsher consequence than is deserved. God comes in and says, you're to exercise justice. You're going to to make the uh, punishment fit the crime. So when it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it's not talking literally. It's talking figuratively in the sense of make the punishment fit the crime. Be just in your judicial courtroom dealings, so to speak. But the Lord Jesus is saying, uh, if you take that to mean that personally, um, you know, you're to respond in that way, then you've misunderstood the word of God. And yet, a lot of people operate on the, the, the uh, maxim, um, not the golden rule, but the get even rule. I don't get mad, I get even. And many times we do that without even thinking twice in various ways. We tend to treat people the way they've treated us. Then finally, we have the last section here where the Lord Jesus talks about uh, loving your neighbor, um, which is the issue of selective love. It's kind of like the bachelor and the bachelorette. I'm going to kind of pick the person I'm going to love. Out of all these people, I think I'll love this person. But I'm not going to love all these other people. And the Lord Jesus is dealing with this attitude that I'm only obligated to love people who love me, or I'm only obligated to love people who serve my interests. I'm not obligated to love people who don't love me or who don't help my agenda in life, whatever that may be. So he says... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is where they added to what the word of God says. It never says in the Old Testament, hate your enemy. In fact, there are ways in which it says, if you find uh, your your enemy's donkey lying on the ground under a load, you are to re- release the donkey and, and help the donkey get back to its owner. So there are various things in the Old Testament that encourages us to actually love our enemies. And the Lord Jesus makes it explicit that that's what God calls us to. And he says, the reason why is because God loves everyone. He doesn't love everyone the same. 
He loves his children uniquely and specially, but he loves everyone. That's the whole point of he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the point of Jesus asking, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're to be like God. We're to be like God, which means I love everyone in the sense that I seek to do them good. I don't harm them. I don't seek to take revenge on them. I show them grace. And so um, we have uh, this um, command that we see where Jesus says God isn't selectively shining sun on sun on some and not on others or giving rain to some and not on others. And he expects us to do the same. We're to love even our enemies. And yet the reality is that is not what we naturally do. And that is not what we have done. None of us can say I've always loved my enemies However, we might define enemy, someone who's hurt us, someone who's abused us, someone who's offended us, someone who hasn't lived up to our expectations, someone who's betrayed us, failed us, whatever. Uh, None of us have always loved them graciously and fully as we should. And so um, basically... um, What the Lord Jesus is doing here is similar to what he does when he says in Matthew 7, before you try to get the the splinter out of your brother's eye, get the log out of your own eye. What does he mean by that? He means that we tend to be very good at finding every little thing that's wrong with other people, but we can't even see the big log in our own eye, or at least we're ignoring the big log in our own eye. And secondly, we don't realize that the splinter that we see in their eye is made of the same substance of the log that is in our eye so that we're actually to identify with them, not see ourselves as being different from them. And so what the Lord Jesus is doing here through this sermon is saying we need to identify with the murderers. We need to identify with the adulterers. We need to identify with the liars. We need to identify with those who don't who take revenge on others. We need to identify with those who don't love everyone as they should. We need to see ourselves in what is going on here. It's kind of like the question that Ray Comfort likes to ask when he's trying to help people see their need for Jesus in his style of witnessing. You could ask a question like, in light of what Jesus just said, should a lying, adulterous murderer who hurts those who hurt him or her and only does good to those who do good to him or her, go to heaven. And Jesus is arguing that um, if we're guilty of these things, no, we don't deserve to go to heaven. But does that mean we can't go to heaven? No, because that's why Jesus came, so that we, lying, adulterous, murdering, hard-hearted, unforgiving, unloving people can go to heaven, can be forgiven, can be given his righteousness because we don't have it. Because the last thing he says in verse 48 is, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's been arguing that none of us are perfect. Yet we have the common maxim, uh, nobody's perfect, And we usually use that to imply, so I shouldn't be concerned about that, should I? And Jesus is saying, yes, you should. You should be concerned that you're not perfect. I should be concerned that I'm not perfect, that I don't love God perfectly, that I don't love other people perfectly, that I don't love those who've hurt me and who are my, quote, enemies perfectly. We have to be rescued from the idea that God grades on a curve, When I was in college, I had professors that graded on a curve. That curve was set by the person who scored the highest on the test. And so you prayed for people to do poorly so that you had a better chance of surviving with a pretty good grade. And you always despise people who busted the curve. What does that mean? They got 100%, so there's no curve anymore. 
And so everybody is graded on the basis of whether or not you scored perfectly or not. And that's just an illustration of the fact that why do why do sinners naturally not like people who seem to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes? Because they see them as busting the curve. I'm trying to get to heaven on my good deeds, and that guy over there is better than I am, and he's busting the curve. He's making it harder for me to be accepted by God because that guy's setting the curve too high. And we have to be rescued from the idea that there, there is this standard that I can actually attain to be accepted by God. The reality is God's standard is not based on the best the world has to offer. It's not based on the best I have to offer. It's based on his own perfect righteousness. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he asked him, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. There's only one who is truly righteous. And he says, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, which ones? Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, etc., etc. And he goes on to basically expose the fact that uh, he had not done that and could not do that. The Bible says there is none righteous, not even one, and that the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That brings me to my last point. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I came to keep all the commandments. I came to perfectly obey all that the Bible says about loving God and loving people. Why? so that I could give that perfect record of obedience to everyone who will humble themselves and say they need it and will receive it. I came to do that. That's what we mean when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we say something like, uh, Jesus is the double cure. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead as the only Lord and Savior. Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man, and he still crucified him. Jesus at one point said, which of you convicts me of sin? Don't ever ask your wife that question. What sin have I done? Oh, how much time do you have? And we'll talk about it. The Lord Jesus was bold enough to say, point out one sin in my life. Was he he being proud and boastful? No, he was saying, I am the answer to your sinfulness. I'm the answer to your need. You lack a righteousness, a perfect obedience, but I have it. You can't even point out one sin. And I'm doing it for sinners that they might be saved. The last story, and I'll conclude with this, is a story in Matthew 22 where uh, a king puts on a wedding for his son and he provides wedding clothes for everyone. And there's a guy who comes to the wedding but he refuses the wedding clothes. And the king walks through and he says, hey, how come you don't have any wedding clothes on? And the guy doesn't say anything. He's silent. The implication is he was offered the wedding clothes, but he said, no, thank you. I think what I've got on is just fine. And it says that the king uh, said, bind him hand and foot and cast him out. That is a picture of what will happen to everyone who says, I know Jesus offers me a righteousness that he's earned through his obedience, but I think my clothing is just fine. I think I can be accepted and I ought to be accepted by God based on my own goodness. I don't think I lack anything. The Bible tells us that the truth is we do lack. And so we have to ask the question, Do I need Jesus? And the answer for me and for you is, if you're not perfect, you desperately need Jesus. And I am not perfect, and I desperately need Jesus. And I'm thankful that he's an able and willing Savior for all who will admit their need and believe that he can give them what they need. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I thank you that we have the hope of being given a righteousness that we don't have. I pray for anyone here who has not yet seen their need, that you would show them their need. And for anyone here who has not yet received that offer of a gift of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, I pray that they would receive it this very day. And I pray for those of us who have received it, that we would rejoice in the gift of the righteousness of Christ and that it would give us great peace and joy in the midst of all that we're going through right now. Father, please help us to see what we need to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.